Welcome to the Sovereign Grace Church Sermons Podcast. Enjoy the sermon by Pastor Jason. Sovereign Grace Church is a Bible-based, gospel-centered church. Please enjoy. Alright, so let's go ahead and get into the text. Um, as we enter into chapter 5 of John. Now here, the infallible, inspired Word of God, John 5, verses 1 through 15. <clears throat> After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed. And walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now there, now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Let us pray. Father, we we are thankful for your word that it is infallible, inspired, and inerrant, that it does more than just give us a bunch of inspirational quotes and and, and things we can print on t-shirts and put on our walls. God, this is your word. This is what you have said. This is what is written for the edification of the saints so that we may know you. God, we know you because of this. God, we thank you so much for that. God, I pray that you would help us to see it daily as the truth. And God, as we go into this, we ask that you would remove the veil that we may see Christ revealed for who he is. Help us to see exactly what we're seeing here in truth, knowing exactly what it means. And Father, we ask that the Holy Spirit would be our guide in this, that we may retain it, that it may make a difference in our lives and renew our minds to you. We are thankful. Help us, Father. Sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth in Christ's name. Amen. So, this is a different type of narrative than we've seen. Uh, J.C. Ryle points out that this is one of the few miracles that is recorded in John. I don't know if you noticed this. We've had three miracles in John, and it is not as many as any of the other Gospels record. Um, Yet, in this interaction, we don't see the the like theological depth 
that we've seen in the other interactions, like with Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. It's, it's not as theologically in-depth. It's not as much uh, different things about who God is and, and those sorts of things about how, how we are saved. Those things, we don't see those as much here. Um, but there is, in this text, some important themes that I think we see expressed in these verses, and I think we need to take note of those, and we need to see exactly what we're looking at, and we need to apply some of the things that we're seeing here. Um, there are actually five themes that I see uh, covered in this in an in-depth way, and we're going to pull those out. But before we do that, let's address the elephant in the room. Many of you have an ESV Bible, and you're wondering, probably, where's verse 4? Right? Does NKJV have uh, verse 4 in there, Brother Jesse, or is it... Chapter 5, verse 4. Yep. Does it have it in there? Uh-huh. Uh, well, for an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water, then whoever stepped in the burns after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. If you have an ESV Bible, it's not there. There's a reason why. Most of our Bibles skip from verse 3 to verse 5. So, what happened? If you've been coming on Wednesday nights, this is a, 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 a kind of a an interesting aside that goes along with what we've been learning on Wednesday nights. The translations that do include verse 4, like the New King James, which uh, Brother Jesse just read to us, verse 4 speaks of an angel coming down and stirring the waters at a certain time of day, and the first person in would be healed of their infirmities, right? That's kind of a basic gist of what that verse 4 means. Well, why would that be skipped in our Bibles, in our ESV Bibles? What's wrong with our ESV Bibles? Well, the answer is very simple. We've been learning quite a lot on Wednesday nights about the formation and development of the Bible and about textual criticism, about looking at the verses in the original text on the original manuscripts. The reason that many modern translations do not include verse 4 is that it did not appear in the original transcripts. That's why. Many scholars believed it was a later edition, and, and it's possible that it what, it what it was was a notation in the margin and what it was probably telling was uh, what they thought was happening in that culture. They thought an angel was coming and stirring the water. So this is probably a notation in the margins about what they thought was happening when the water was stirred. But what was most likely happening was it was an artesian well. We know that artesian wells have healing properties in them. Hot springs have healing properties in them, right? From infirmities like in, you know, if you have arthritis, it's good to go to a hot spring or an artesian well, right? Because you can sit in there and it helps helps you feel better. So, Brother Gizzard has been teaching us on textual criticism and the variances we see in the original text. Therefore, this difference in the text doesn't bother us. Why? Because we know that the Word of God is infallible, inspired, and inerrant. And just because there's a slight difference here doesn't mean that the whole thing's wrong. Okay? So, let's go into it then. 
I want to dig into the important themes that we see, kind of a, kind of go a, a, a theme at a time, so that we can kind of dig into what we're seeing. And luckily, these things kind of do stick together into verses and in order. Uh, let's read verses one through nine. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and the, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which is which has five roofed colonnades, and these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for thirty-eight years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. While I'm going, another steps in before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. As we go into this first theme, I have a quote from J.C. Ryle that I thought was so appropriate as to what we're looking at with this, this little set of texts here. It says, He is far more ready to save than man is to be saved. Far more willing to do good than a man is to receive it. Our first theme is very clear by what we see in the text. Jesus is so merciful to those who are in need. He is a willing Savior. And in this text, He seeks out the man and not vice versa. He's far more willing to, to save us than we are willing to be saved. We talked about that in Sunday school. The, man, the heart of man is wicked and deceitful. It likes the darkness, right? And yet he is a willing Savior seeking us out by his, by his wonderful sacrifice. The man had been invalid for 38 years. He was laying there with this multitude and Jesus sought him out. He asked the man a very important question. He said, do you want to be healed? Now, Jesus knows the heart of men. We see that all throughout Scripture. He goes into an interaction and it says very plainly, but Jesus knowing their hearts. So Jesus knows the heart of this man, right? Sproul speculates that the man was possibly, possibly, it's not written here, but Sproul, R.C. Sproul speculates that it's possible. It's possibly true that the man was comfortable. He had a bed. He was laying out. People were kind of helping him fulfill his needs, right? In this culture, they were probably giving him alms, giving him food, because he was laying there and couldn't do anything about it, right? It's possible that he was comfortable in his position, not having to do anything for himself. And Jesus asked him, do you want to be healed? And the man's answer, I think kind of gives a little bit of a telling as well. He says, instead of, yes, I want to be healed, he says, I don't have anyone to help me into the pool. So you know what he was probably saying to Jesus based on the way he answered? Well, you know, you could stick around and help me get in there when it starts a bubbling, right? 
He's he, he's asking for something. Instead of the healing, he's asking for, oh, maybe you can stick around and help me. Because he's grown so used to having his needs met as he's laying there. But Jesus doesn't just stick around and stick him in the pool when it starts bubbling. Right? Jesus does what a merciful Savior can do. He extends the mercy of physical healing to this man. Make no mistake, it is his mercy that heals us. In his mercy, if we're ever healed from anything, it is because he is a merciful God. We don't necessarily deserve anything. We don't deserve healing from him. What we deserve is very simple. Wrath for our sinfulness. This man... All he deserved from Jesus really was wrath for his sinfulness. Yet, Jesus in his mercy extends healing to him. He tells him to take up his bed and walk. And that was an ultimate show of Jesus' great compassion toward this man. He is a willing Savior and a compassionate Savior. Jesus has compassion on those who are lost. He has compassion on those who are in need and we see that throughout scripture. When the multitude was hungry, what did he do? He had compassion and he made them a meal. Matthew 9.36 is very clear on something. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And that, if we're honest, is our lives before Christ. We're sheep, wandering lost without a shepherd. And who is he? He is the good shepherd. We are so undeserving of this compassion from our God, yet Jesus gives it to this man. And what happens next? Jesus tells him to get up and walk, and what does he do? He does it. But, there's just one problem with that. It's the Sabbath. So guess who's fixing to join the, the conversation? Let's read that last part of uh, verse 9 in verses 10 through 12. It says, Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? These Jews have, have one mind. They have a one-track mind. It's only on one thing always. Even when they encounter a man who has been invalid for 38 years, they have one mind. What was the first thing they said to him? It's unlawful for you to be carrying your bed like that. Now, first, first, we need to approach the truthfulness of what they said. Let's think. Because R.C. Sproul in his commentary could not find a law 
in the Old Testament that said you couldn't carry your bed somewhere on the Sabbath. It wasn't there. I thought back. I couldn't find one either. You know why? Because it's not in there. They said it's unlawful for you to carry your bed on the Sabbath. Well, it doesn't say that in the Scriptures. It turns out that there's a reason for that. It's not in there. It turns out that the rabbis had made their own laws about what couldn't be done on the Sabbath. In fact, they made 39 laws of what you couldn't do on the Sabbath. And the man who had been invalid for 38 years was breaking the 39th one. You weren't allowed to carry anything from one place to another on the Sabbath. According to the Bible? No. According to the laws of the elders, these rules that they had made up. So this man had been healed from an infirmity of 38 years and the Jews couldn't rejoice with him because they were too concerned about the laws that they had created, about these traditions of men that they had created. Kind of like when they told... Jesus that his disciples needed to do the ritual hand washings for the for the food, not because of any antibacterial help for eating, no, because no that the elders said this. The elders made this law. I'm listening to a um Renewing Your Mind with RC Sproul where he's talking about the idolatry of legalism. When we make up these laws that aren't there and they become our pets. And that's what we base everything upon is the rules that we make up. Jesus spoke directly to the Pharisees and the Jews about this. He said in Luke eleven forty two through 48 But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God, those you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. You see, they made up these rules, and they were so pious about these rules. And you'll see it in any legalist. They'll make up all these rules, these dress codes, these, these things you can and can't do that are not outlined in scriptures. And yet they make it a scriptural thing. They try to make it as high as what God has said in his scriptures. And what's in, what ends up happening? They end up destroying people's hearts and lives because they don't care enough about them to help them actually. That's what these Pharisees and these Jews have done. They built up all these rules, heaped them on these people, and they didn't love a single one of them. 
let us pray that we never fall into this type of legalistic way of life. That we never do this. That we trust what God's Word says is what's right and wrong. And that we call people out with the truth in love, but not about what they're wearing or, or those sorts of things. We call them out with the truth of the Gospel that they need a Savior because their hearts are wicked. Let's go to verse 13. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn and there was a crowd in the place. Hmm. Now, I know that doesn't seem like a huge verse, but there's actually something huge here that we need to we need to identify and we need to dig into because there's something very interesting that can be gleaned from this short verse. Because the faith healer will tell you that you have to have enough faith to be healed. If you aren't healed, it's your fault because you must not have enough faith. If things go wrong in your life, what, whose fault is it? It's your fault because you don't have enough faith. If you'd had enough faith, everything would have been right. If I'd had, had enough faith, then my mom wouldn't have passed away in 2015 on Christmas Day. And that's how I felt for a long time. But there's something very interesting about this. Let's look at it closer. Did Jesus begin his interaction with this man by talking about deep theological knowledge like he did with Nicodemus? He began talking to Nicodemus by saying, you must be born again to inherit the kingdom of God. He do that with this man? Nope. Did he tell the man that he was the Messiah like he did the Samaritan woman? Never, never came out of his mouth. What did he say? He said, you want to be healed? Take up your bed and walk. This verse tells us that he didn't even know who Jesus was. So, from that, can we glean whether he had any faith at all? He didn't have any faith. He just did what the man told him to do. So he didn't have any faith in Christ at all. He didn't even know who he was. Jesus decided to heal the man by his sovereign choice. It still works that way. God heals whomever he wills. And we could never have enough faith to get ourselves healed. There's not enough faith. There's not enough a special faith, any type of magical faith that will get us healed. It is all through Christ and His sovereign choice. So, this man actually did nothing to be healed, did he? He didn't even know who it was. And I absolutely love what happens next. Because in verse 14 it says, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. So did Jesus leave it at a healing? Nope. He sure didn't. He called the man to repentance. In fact, it says that Jesus found him. This implies that it was not just happenstance, that he just runs into the man. It says Jesus found the man in the temple. He tells him 
First of all, he, he basically says, look, you're healed. I told you to take up your bed and walk, and you did it. He's establishing his authority. And then what does he say? Tells him to stop continuing in sin so that he won't face a worse fate than laying there for 38 years not being able to do nothing. And there is a fate worse than 38 years of infirmity. Eternal punishment in hell. That's what's worse. So, Jesus didn't come to just heal folks willy-nilly. A lot of people read the scriptures and they, all they think is, well, this is just Jesus willy-nilly he encountered. Everybody he encountered, he healed. Well, that's not true anyway, because if you read in Mark, you can see that he left a multitude of people that wanted to be healed because he said, I have come to preach the gospel. So he's not just zapping folks into healing. That's not what he's doing. He wanted to save people. He came to save them, to redeem them, to call them to repentance, to give them new life, to take them out of the kingdom of darkness and put them in the kingdom of light, to make them sons and daughters of God and not the sons and daughters of wrath and the enemies of God. To take goats and turn them into sheep. That's what he did. That's why he came, not to just be some magical miracle worker. It may not be popular in our day to confront people with sin. We know that, right? We need, we're supposed to, according to uh, popular secular belief, we're supposed to, to uh, affirm people. Otherwise, we're judgy. Well, apparently it wasn't that popular in Jesus' day either to confront people with their sin, especially religious folks who thought they were awesome because he was hated by the Jews for doing just that. In fact, if we look at the first part of verse 16, which we're going to start with next week, it says, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. We are called to do the same thing that Jesus does here. To point out, don't continue in this sinful way of life. Turn to Christ and have new life in Him. In the next verse, though, we see a typical reaction to this. Verse 15, if we don't read it like it says it, sometimes we'll, we'll, we'll miss it. We'll think, oh, this man was so happy. He just loved Jesus. Right? Because Jesus healed him, so he's, he's awesome. But what does it say that happened? The man went away after Jesus said, you, you, need, you don't need to continue in your sin or something worse is going to come upon you. What does he do? He leave, It says the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. He goes directly to the Pharisees and he gives them the name of Jesus. That wasn't a happy way of acknowledging somebody who had just healed you. That was him going to the Pharisees and giving the name of Jesus so that they could go after the one who told him he could rise up and walk with his bed. And you know what? 
the last thing Jesus has said to him is, Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And you know what may have happened in his heart? He may have been offended by the fact that Christ confronted him with his sin. He may have thought Jesus was being super judgy. He may have been given the sads by Jesus. So he had the sads. So you know what? He's been given the sads. Then maybe he decided to go to the people and uh, give them the name of Jesus. Maybe that's what was happening. He may have feared the the Jews. He may have thought, well, I better give them his name so they don't come back after me. Because what did they have the power to do? Kick you out of the synagogue. That's what they did to the early Christians. You're kicked out of the synagogue. Guess what? You had no access to God anymore. It was like the Pope excommunicating people. Regardless of what, what, what the motivation was, this gives us a picture of how the real Christ is regarded in our day. A Jesus that has wrath and confronts sin is not accepted in our day. He's turned over to the Pharisees. He's rejected. How many of you have ever heard, well, that's not my God. My God wouldn't do that. You're right, your God probably wouldn't do that because you don't have the same one as the Bible describes. Atheists and God-haters reject it. We know that. False converts in the church who only want a God who affirms them deny by their words and deeds the Jesus that we see here. This man was healed. And he didn't think or take time to ask Jesus who he even was. Then, when he finds out who Jesus is, the first thing he does is give his name to the Pharisees, the ones who want to get rid of him. It is an unthankful generation that turns from Christ to the stuff. For Christ is so much more than the things that He gives. He is the Savior of all the world. I think if we were going to take away anything, there's a couple things I think we should really take away from this set of verses. The main thing is that Jesus is a wonderful and compassionate Savior and His mercies toward us truly have no end. We of all people, if we are in Christ, we have been blessed beyond what anybody could be blessed by. We have had the wrath of God taken away. We've been taken from the kingdom of darkness and, and given and taken to the kingdom of marvelous light. We have been turned from enemies to sons and daughters. We have fellowship with God all through one thing, not anything we can do, all through what Christ has done on the cross to save us. And the second thing I would say is that we need to take away from this is that we must follow Jesus' example. We can't leave a call to repentance and confronting of sin out of our interactions with the lost. We never know who Jesus will save. So we must always give the gospel. 
And there is no true gospel without a true understanding of the law and the fact that we can't fulfill it. We're born sinful and we all need a Savior. And that's why we must at all times call to repentance just as Jesus did. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. It's pretty good advice from a Savior. <coughs> Lastly, let me leave you with this thought. This man was so ungrateful to the one who had saved him from a life of being an invalid for 38 years. Jesus is worthy of all our thanksgiving and worship. No matter what our circumstances look like, no matter what situations or problems or troubles we may go through, Jesus is always worthy of our thanksgiving and worship. And we need to give it to Him. Any great thing that has happened in your life is because God is merciful. Any negative thing that has happened in your life is because God is drawing you unto Himself. And you must worship Him. He is worthy of all of our worship. So, as you go through your life, as you go through your week and through your days, we must, especially in this season of Advent when we celebrate how Jesus came as God the Son from heaven to earth to take on flesh to die for us, we must, we must worship Him. We must lift up worship to Him, for He is worthy. I think it's, I always think it's so interesting that as He was entering into the, the the city on Palm Sunday, they're waving palms and 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 the children were crying out, calling Him Messiah, and they said, "Do you hear what they're calling you?" And He says, "If they didn't do it, the rocks would cry out." He must receive worship, for He is worthy. So let us be a people who worship Him as He deserves. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for Your Word and what You have shown us through this interaction. That God, we deserve no mercy. We deserve no help. Yet You give it to us through Christ. We have all things. We live and move and have our being in Him. We can't help but be happy and joyful in our lives because of the great mercies which we have given, that we've been given through Christ. God, we have a peace that passes all the understanding because in the storms of life and in the, in the, in the difficulties of circumstances, you have, through Christ, made a way for our ultimate salvation, that any moment that we face on this earth is just temporary. It is just a blink of an eye when compared with eternity. God, help us to be eternally minded people that we know our kingdom is not of this world, that we are not citizens of the United States, we are citizens of heaven, and that if we would put our focus upon that, upon the eternal life which you have bought for us through Christ, then our lives would be much, much more easily handled, and we would see Christ even more. God, we pray that those who don't have Christ, much like this man, who maybe are unwilling to be thankful to Christ for all that He does, who maybe 
reject him because of their desire to seek after the darkness rather than the light. God, we ask that you would prick them to the heart, convict them through the power of the Holy Spirit, that they may repent and trust in Christ for the salvation of their sins. Sinner, you must run to Christ and cling to him. He is your only hope. God, we thank, thank you for this fellowship of believers, for this communion of saints. Help us all to be in you joyful and thankful and lift up worship to you daily. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. So, uh, uh, one thing that I wanted to bring out, I don't know if, if you guys know this, if you've been on preborn.org recently, they are actually, they have a donor who is matching donations right now. <coughs> recently gave a donation, that donation was matched, so it was doubled. So, if you have any giving that you'd like to do for uh, the holidays, if that's something that your family does, then I would urge you to give to preborn.org because they're going to double whatever you give. So, instead of saving one baby, you may save two. Instead of saving uh, five babies, you may save 10. So 